Welcome to the podcast of Azel Christian Church. We are a Disciples of Christ Church community in Azel, Texas. We invite everyone to be who you are with us, the doubting, the believing, the wondering, and everything in between. On this podcast, you'll hear our pastor, Reverend Ashley Dargai, preach on how the expansive and generative love of God is seen through Jesus, the prophets, the early church, and the faith forebears, and how this love helps us care for the world more deeply and faithfully. Sometimes it's messy and tough, but it's good news, and it is for you. Our scripture reading is from Colossians 1. It's verses 1 through 23. It'll be on the screen. It's also on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You have heard of this hope before in the word of the truth, the gospel that has come to you. Just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. This you learned from Epaphras, our our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And for this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to God as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from God's glorious power so that you may have all endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. God has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he, may come, he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to God's self all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before God, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith, without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature unto heaven. I, Paul, became a minister of this gospel. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. 
So we begin a new series today, first day, or no, study hall. Okay, I should learn the name of the series, right? Study hall. I need to go to study hall more to remember this. It flustered me a little bit. Okay, I'm back in it. So today is our first day. So in true first day fashion, let us take an overview of the subject, shall we? So let's begin with the text that we'll be using during this study hall. The letter to the Colossians is traditionally attributed to the Apostle Paul, as we saw, when he was in prison. But scholarship tells us that it was likely a student of Paul's who wrote it. It was customary and a sign of respect to write in the same vein as a teacher. Old Testament writers did it too. And Colossians is likely the closest we get theologically and in tone as these pseudo-Paul letters get. And next, let us remember, as biblical literature students, that Colossians is an epistle. It's a letter from a person to a church, to a couple of churches, actually. It's not a theological treatise. It's not a history report, and nor is it a prescription for Christian living. It's somebody's mail, just one small part of an ongoing correspondence between two parties in a time and a culture and a language very different than our own, which means we have questions whose answers will be lost to time. The letter to the Colossians is an ancient text that contains a lot of puzzle pieces that may seem incomprehensible to us at times, except it's not puzzle pieces from the same puzzle. We have a corner piece from one puzzle, and then a, a middle piece from another puzzle, and then a button, and perhaps a scatterjack, and an acorn. And alongside these curious findings, there's a piece of paper with a poem scrawled on it, and a picture of someone you don't know with no name on the back. And there's a ticket stub, and a foreign language, and a key, and a marble. And we're supposed to build an image from all of these things. So our assignment during this series is not to try and make all of these things fit in a comprehensible way. It's not to prescribe whatever is being said to the Colossian church to our church. It's simply to roll the marble around in our hands, to read the poem out loud to each other, to spin the button between our fingers, to pass the acorn around, each of us having a look at it, it's not that we don't know anything about the letter to the Colossians. It's simply that we don't know everything or even all the important parts. And so we politely open somebody else's mail, holding our own context in our hearts and read with some imagination. And we do this because ancient texts were not always ancient. That may seem obvious, but it's worth remembering that this letter to the community in Colossae was once a piece of contemporary correspondence to a particular community in a particular place and time. So let's consider what we know of our subject. Colossae was a town in what is now modern-day Turkey. It was a cosmopolitan city where diverse cultural and religious elements mingled, and it was part of the mighty Roman Empire where Pax Romana ruled. Now, the concept of peace is gonna be very important in our course, so let's review for a minute what Pax Romana meant. Well, first it meant that people lived without constant warfare, 
just nice. If you lived in the Roman Empire, you did not live under the threat of a sudden attack and pillaging. You were protected from that instability, and you were reminded of this peace everywhere. On the gates to the cities as you entered, in the temples, in the victory parades that accompanied imperial worship, and on the coins you used to pay at the market. Now, these coins are an interesting piece of history because on one side, there was Pax, the goddess of peace. And on the other side, there was weapons. So that we always remember that this peace, this Roman peace, was achieved by the blood of the sword. Now, to be clear, this peace was good for some but it was also bad for others. And a marker of this peace was how it divided the people. It made the wealthy even wealthier. It made the peasants, the vast majority of the population, hopeless and impoverished. And the Roman Empire was an empire first and only. It ruled supreme. And empires maintain their sovereignty by a lot of things. By not only establishing a monopoly of markets and political structures and military might, but also by monopolizing the imagination of its subjects. You see, imperial mythology is strong and seductive. Putting one's hope all in a person or a party or a policy It's not something that originated in the last few years or in the last 200 years. Trusting in the empire or in the story empire tells about itself, which always posits the empire as the hero and the protagonist, this is not something that is unique to America or the Western world. Worshiping military might or the economic system of empire as your god They've been around for a really long time. And it's easy to get sucked in because, like I said before, the mythology is everywhere. On the money, on the city structures, in places of worship. And it was compelling and a relatively peaceful way to live. But there were other compelling ways of life available to the Colossians. The writer of this letter will speak about false teachers proposing different religious rules and esoteric knowledge available only to a particular strain of a religious group. Being the ones who are right, who can talk the loudest or the longest, the ones who have access to God because they have removed themselves from participation in the world. That also was an attractive option in the marketplace of meaning in Colossae. I mean, maybe you were fed up with the worship of the state because you saw how it abused its citizens and created and perpetuated oppression. So instead of living into the larger-than-life story of Rome, you could live the life of an ascetic, like a monk philosopher charmed by a group that might have had its own cult documentary on Netflix had it existed today. Even as the faithful Colossian church followed the lead of Judaism, in resisting the emperor cult by observing alternative feasts and festivals, questions about how to live in this world together, spurred by the stories of Christ, plagued them. I mean, they were asking questions like, should they free their slaves? Should they be selling their goods to imperial high priests? 
Should they give back the farms that, that became theirs because peasant owners could not pay their debts? And what does it mean for them to use their wealth for the pride of the city and empire now that they no longer honored the emperor? So these are some of our learning objectives during this series. The letter begins how most letters begin, with greetings and salutations. The writer applauds the church for their faith, for the way it has borne fruit that feeds many. And she or he subtly hints at the issue of these false teachers by praying for wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And so then there's this talk of the kingdom and the world and the powers of darkness. So in the intro, we see some of these big issues bubbling up. It's all laying the groundwork for what will come later on in this series. But then our writer presents something interesting. It's not a detailed argument for why Jesus is the best. They won't give a syllabus of assigned reading or lead an impassioned debate about why Christianity is right and everyone else is wrong. No, instead, the writer quotes poetry, a move I admire. I mean, just as Jesus would answer legal questions with stories and parables, which I'm sure was maddening, the writer to the Colossians answers real-life issues with a poem. And even in translation, this poem cuts to the heart. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christ was the firstborn of all creation, for him, in him, through him, everything was created. Everything we can see and everything we can't. Christ is before all things, and in Christ all things hold together. He is the head of the church. He is the beginning, and the fullness of God dwelt in him. God was pleased to work through Christ to reconcile creation to God's self. Now, some of this poem may sound familiar to you to something that we all said together earlier this morning. Our litany of faith is from Proverbs 8, where Lady Wisdom, known as Sophia in Christian tradition, was with God in the beginning. So that this poem is subtly drawing on ancient stories and playing with beautiful philosophy with the flick of a verse, and it's playing on a whole repertoire of narrative and belief that is underlying the church. Take it from a former English teacher. Poetry can bring down kingdoms, y'all. This poem, much like Jesus' parables, is not a sidestep of the big questions. It's not an evasion of hard issues. Neither is it a simple Jesus is the answer to your problems response either. Because I don't think that Jesus is the answer. I mean, is that bad to say? Perhaps by alighting our imaginations with this poem, our writer is reminding us of Christ's function, not as a piece of the cosmos, but as the very fabric of it. Christ precedes and creates the very world we live in. Christ is the medium of life, the milieu of meaning. So that with everything the Colossians have going on, Christ is a field of exploration. Christ is not the door to Narnia. Christ is Narnia, so to speak. So Jesus is not the answer. Jesus is the question. 
Jesus cannot be an object of conquest or the warrior king because he laid his life down. He said no to violence as a path to peace. He's not a body of knowledge or the best and final explanation. Christ is the open-ended question that we live into every day, individually and with others, within a worldly kingdom and also somehow transcending it. He provokes and he pokes and he startles and he offends and he lifts our awareness to something we didn't notice and he speaks what we could not put into words. In Jesus, the church in Colossae was being called to answer, to be an answer to this question. And I wonder what it means for us that Christ is an open-ended question. For we, too, live in a competitive marketplace of meaning and relevance. Empire worship is real in our context, but it's certainly not the only offering of meaning. The worship of youthfulness, the obsession with positive thinking and progress, the allegiance to the status quo, the markets, the politicians, the ideologies, the intersecting pieces of oppressive structures in racism, classism, sexism, ableism, homophobia, etc. the list goes on. These are all marked on our money and in our structures and in our celebrations. And is Christ just another piece of the world we live in? Or is he the animating force of all that is? Is his love the current, the breath, the energy, the beating heart of what it means to live with one another? And how does that change how we live in community? How do we engage the world at large and also in front of our faces, day in and day out? I don't have the answer. I only have the question. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Azel Christian Church podcast. Azel Christian Church exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through meaningful liturgy during worship, a public witness through outreach in the community, the nurturing of the spiritual life of every age group, and the witness of each member through discipleship, baptism, and the sharing of resources. To support this podcast and the ministries of Azel Christian Church, visit azelchristianchurch.org. Here you can contribute through giving online or find our Venmo information. If you're looking for a church or simply want to talk to one of our ministers, contact us through our website and we will be in touch. Talk to you soon.